it's so unreal. There was a couple weeks ago where, you know, I'd been on the phone with so many of these incredible sources, some of them celebrities, some of them just people I never thought would reach out and talk to me. And it was just one after another. And I, it's just, yeah, I get off the phone and I'm like, is this real life? Like, was I just washing dishes, talking to Courtney Love about, you know, her roses her in the garden? This year, Jessica Reed Kraus, a little-known storyteller from Orange County, suddenly found herself with a million followers on Instagram and tens of thousands of paying subscribers on Substack. How did she get there? Well, it involved Amber Heard, Johnny Depp, Elon Musk, and a few Silicon Valley sex parties. Today on The Active Voice, I talked to one of the biggest and most influential gossip writers in America. You might not yet recognize her name, but that's about to change. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and here is Jessica Reed Krause. Johnny Depp called you, or you spoke on a phone call with Johnny Depp. I did. How did that happen? You know, it came about from a friend of his had found me on Instagram, I think because his wife recommended me. She was a, a longtime follower, and I think I announced that I was going to be covering it. So there was just a short... Covering little, the Johnny Depp co- versus the trial. Amber Heard trial. Right. Yeah. And so she told her husband that I was going to be covering it, and she thought he should reach out, that it you know would be a great person to follow. And so after my, I think, probably my first day of coverage, I kind of unrolled the story as a teaser. We had had a conversation, me and the friend, and yeah, he called me. I was on the soccer field with my son, got a random number and picked up the line and it was him. And Did you know the call was coming? No, I almost didn't answer it because, you know, who answers a phone number they don't recognize? Yeah, while you're on the soccer field it, as I well. had no idea the, the call was coming. You weren't paying attention to your son's game? At the no, time. no. I, I was just like, please, please stop complaining because I think it, it was ending, you know, and he was hmm. wanted a hamburger or something. Yeah. I'm like, please stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so Johnny... As soon as he spoke on the other line, I mean, it's, his voice is very distinct. Could right? you see his face? Was it FaceTime call? No, was it audio, just a audio phone call. call. It was yeah. a three-way. Yeah, you're allowed to say that on this show. <laughs> it was a three-way conversation, and yeah, right away he just was, you know, so kind, and he was very easy to talk to. Were you, and, sh- were you shocked? Like, what was it? Was it? Oh, we like Johnny Depp is on the phone. Oh, to me. I was absolutely shocked. I complete even now. I'm like, did that really happen? You know, I think when I got off the phone, I was like what the hell was that? I just took a random phone call from Johnny Depp and it was a great conversation. I mean, he had all sorts of interesting stories and he just seems to be an easy person to talk to. And and you've written about that phone call as well uh, I on, did. on your Substack, which is called House and Habit. It's the same name as your Instagram account. So you're kind of covering uh, the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial on Instagram through stories and uh, reels. I'm sorry, I'm not that familiar with Instagram. And um, on your Substack in long form as well, right? Uh, so at that point, the trial had just was about to begin. You hadn't gone to Virginia. You're based in Orange County, California. You hadn't gone to Virginia. Yeah, it was very new. So we didn't, nobody knew yet how the media was going to cover it or nobody knew what was going to happen because he had already lost a trial in the UK and right. the media was really kind of stacked against him. So Nobody had an idea that this whole independent online tsunami of support was was on its way. So I think he was just appreciative of an independent journalist willing to look at it from a, a fresh perspective. Because you, you were quite strongly supportive of Johnny Depp throughout this uh, I trial. was, uh, yes, based on the information. I researched deep that first week. 
I went through all the documents and I found the people who had all the evidence. And right away, I, I formed an opinion. And then when I opened my inbox to anonymous sources, they all came forward. And that convinced me, you know, as well. So it was a combination of the evidence research and then these sources. But by the time the the closing arguments were set to happen, I had, you know, grown this huge audience. And it was like 40% of my audience was tuning in to watch these daily coverage. Mm -hmm. So I, I, there's no coincidences in these kind of contentious media wars. And something that he and you seem to have in common is that you think maybe um, the mainstream media uh, isn't covering that kind of thing in, in, in as well a way as it could be covered. Is, is that a fair characterization of your view on that? Yeah, I, th I think he, he shares the same perspective as far as the kind of death of journalistic integrity. I, you know, he's very good friends with Hunter S. Thompson. I know that's a huge influence in his life. So, and, and same with me, I have always really looked up to the way he wrote and covered stories. And so, yeah, I think we, we both did agree on that as being a lost element. And your role is effectively a reporter covering this trial in a totally different way to what we're used to reading in the newspapers and on seeing on CNN. You're like, you're in the court, you're in the courtroom, you're sort of describing what people are wearing, you're describing like people's body language throughout the, throughout the whole process. It was a long, it was a long trial, but no one asked you to go and report on that. You didn't have an editor saying, go get me the best story on the Johnny Depp uh, versus Amber Heard trial. You just decided to go yourself. And like, did you have like a f official entry into the trial? How did that all work for you? No, I, yeah, I, I just went on my own because I had gone to the Britney Spears trial and the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. And so that showed me the intimate perspective that being inside a courtroom, you know, offers. But so I, I flew out um, on my own accord that first week of the trial in Virginia. And that was before it had taken off. So it was very easy to get in and, very, you know, it was low key. Well, it hadn't become this fanatical. You just went in as a member of the public. Yeah. So we, you know, showed up and they, they were very polite compared to what I faced, you know, in New York courthouse. Uh, the deputies were all very polite. It was, it was very mellow, but I realized that because this was a televised trial that I was, I didn't actually need to be there in person because I'm sitting behind them. So I couldn't see their facial expressions. I was actually uh, yeah. losing the perspective because, you know, I'm sitting behind them. So yeah. I spent a few days out there and then I returned home to cover it in real time because also you can't have your phone out. So, yeah, I was wondering you know, about that. How do you take notes? I guess, yeah, I guess pen and paper? Uh, yes, pen and paper. And so on that one, I decided I didn't need to be there in person for all of it. Mm -hmm. I did go back for the end of it, but the duration of it, I was covering in real time from home. And it was, it was you know, a consuming feat mm -hmm. because you're covering in real time. And at this point, I didn't have enough time. And I couldn't really share a lot of things on my newsletter yet. Mm -hmm. So it was like two forms of coverage happening. Instagram was this incessant um, real-time coverage. And then when the trial wrapped, I was able to, and I'm still actually unfolding the the long form version of it. Mm. And this is kind of a beat you've established for yourself because you kind of had a breakout moments when you're uh, writing about Britney Spears and some courtroom drama around uh, Britney, Britney Spears. And then you went on and covered the Jelaine Maxwell trial as well. And your, your sort of reputation, your following was building all the way along. And then you jumped on the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp story, and your following seems to have skyrocketed from there. And now, what is it? You've got a million followers on Instagram, something like that. Yeah, I've, I'm 
pretty sure the Johnny Depp trial doubled my following, which is crazy. You know, I think I had just under 600,000 uh, when I before I started. And then now it's, you know, a, well over a million. So it was huge. Is this your job? Is this your life now? You're going to go to uh, celebrity court cases and report from the inside and then do a bunch of reporting around the, uh, the, outs, the outskirts, the fringes, getting sources to dish you information and other perspectives? Uh, ideally, yeah. It's, it, I, I do love it. It's, you know, a unique kind of storytelling. And there's always a high-profile court case around the corner. So I would love to continue doing it. So how do you define your job? Do you call yourself a journalist? Do you call yourself a writer? Like, what, what is your job title? That's like the worst part about all of this is I've never, I haven't, I haven't come up with a label that makes sense. And so people don't know what to refer to me as. And I don't know what to refer to myself as because I, I don't really identify as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I don't play by the rules that a traditional journalist. Yes, I don't know. I mean, I always just say I'm a writer, but I haven't found the right. Or I mean, I'm fine with people calling me a gossip columnist because mm-hmm. the majority of what I put forth is based on gossip. You seem to have a respect for gossip. Oh, always. Yeah. yeah. Why is that? I just, I believe it is the word of the people. And I feel like a lot of truth comes from what people relay in their experience. You know, I, yeah. I think the art of gossip is, it's kind of neglected. And I think if people are willing to open up and you're taking a variety of perspectives from these sources who come forward and they all kind of paint the same picture, it starts to show you, you know, and, and it's worked. I think it's proved itself where I present these gossip items. Mm-hmm. And then later on, that's the thing is it's kind of a more immediate delivery. And then later on, they're proven by whatever storylines break, you know. Why do you call it the art of gossip? What do you mean by that? I think there's a an artful way to frame it. I always mention Dominic Dunn as my role model. Mm-hmm. I think he worked it that way. Like mm-hmm. it was very artfully done. And a lot of it had to do with gossip and things he was seeing or hearing about the Hollywood society or the trials that he went on to cover. And I just, I think he did a really you know, tasteful job at it. His Vanity Fair articles were my favorite. And so I think, you know, it doesn't always have to be salacious or... Trashy. Trashy. It's not clickbait. Especially, I think the Ghislaine Maxwell things, people don't... Coming forward, they are offering an unguarded opinion about her or events, you know, that they were a part of because they know that they're not going to be exposed. In fact... The clickbait question is an interesting one because you, the, the headlines you give your posts are very prosaic. They're kind of like Depp versus Heard episode four or something like that. Like, yeah. Are you deliberately avoiding the, the clickbaitiness of it? Are you, is there something that you're trying to achieve by giving them those plain titles? Actually, now that you mention it, I, I don't love a flashy headline, you know. <laughs> I like it to be in the details that are woven into that piece. And some people might think, okay, gossip, guilty pleasure, pop culture, like People are looking to sort of gorge on junk food. They want lots of snacks. But you're writing these these pieces that are like, they seem like 8,000 words, kind of that kind of length. Like you go really long on your Substack. Instagram's different. You use a different format, storytelling. Yeah. But you go really long and people seem to be into it. What's the thinking there? Um, that's been a nice surprise because uh, initially I was trying to keep them shorter. And then it, it was too hard. Uh, you know, I wanted to kind of, drag out the story the way it deserved. And then to my surprise, people appreciated it and they were, you know, the re- the reception was really positive. So now I just, I really just try not to overthink any of them. Some of them are shorter and, and more fact-based. And then some of them are really just based on hearsay and gossip. 
I'm just really repeating. It's not really even my narrative. I'm repeating what others have told me and letting my audience decide what they want to believe or, you know, invest themselves in. Do you feel any resentment from professional journalists? Because you're doing this without an editor, it seems. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong in that assumption. You're doing it sort of with untradi- untraditional techniques, at least when it comes to what newspaper or magazine journalists uh, might be practicing. Like, do you feel any of that sort of rivalry? Oh, definitely. I think it's confusing to them and unsettling because I think they're seeing people like me, mm-hmm. you know, become growing an audience, a giant audience, a, a giant huge audience. power and influence. Yeah, they're and with the numbers, there comes influence and power and. Mm-hmm where people will seek out somebody, you know, an independent voice as opposed to somebody who went to school and it works at the New York Times. So suddenly they're waiting for the someone like me or who else, you know, they might love on whatever, TikTok or Instagram. So they're waiting to see the story told from their perception. From what I can tell, I think the mainstream journalists are confused by it. And there's definitely, I sense like an underlying resentment and I get it. And I also think... There is a tendency to want to dismiss me as, you know, like a throwaway gossip site. But I think the evidence is in the audience. Do you think the the People magazines, the Us Weeklies are, are dying? I mean, I think they should. They're not great. Hmm. Uh, that's my whole thing is when I look at, you know, somebody spending $6 on a magazine where the information is so st- stripped down mm-hmm. and just kind of obvious, mm-hmm. whereas you know, I'm going to write, if I'm going to write about one of these people, I'm going to go back and pull all sorts of things mm-hmm. that, you know, I think are... And no one's trying to cut deals on the side with you, I imagine. A lot of those uh, magazines are sort of, uh, they're like orchestrated paparazzi shoots and like yeah, careful no. planning. Yeah, because I'm in charge of all, I mean, if it's my newsletter, I'm in charge of the visuals, I'm in charge of the imagery, the editing, and then, you know, the content. So it's, yeah, it's kind of like a magazine the way I would like to see it. But I, I think those magazines are... I don't know how long they have. Are you surprised by the extent of the hunger for the stuff that you were producing uh, throughout these cases? Oh, yeah. I'm completely shocked by it. What What do you think people came to you? Like, what was it that you're sort of giving people that they weren't getting elsewhere? Um, the only thing I can think is that they share the same type of curiosity as me. You know, I like to know the inner workings of what's going on in a courthouse. I like the interactions between people. I want to hear about, you know, facial expressions, wardrobe choices, all these just little things that happen. You know, a a regular newspaper, an outlet is not going to report. It doesn't seem newsworthy. Mm -hmm. And what has it been like? What does it feel like to have because I'm, I'm not, I mean, no uh, disparagement by this, but you're like, you're not a famous person. You're not a well-known right. uh, journalist. You're not a TV personality. You're a, you're a mother of four kids. You live in Orange County. You're reporting from your phone a lot of the times, it seems like. And then all of a sudden, you've, been, you've had this massive growth. You've got tens of thousands of paying subscribers on Substack. Your Instagram account has become a phenomenon. What's that whole experience felt like for you? Because it seems to have happened in a very short time. It did. It's happened very quickly. I didn't see it coming. It's not like anything I prepared for or plotted, you know. I was just doing what felt right to me and and the coverage I prefer and the way I like storytelling to be unfolded. So I didn't see any of it coming, which has been incredible. I'm so excited and, and grateful because I would do this for free. It's, you know, my passion is telling these stories. Some of the stories are explosive. Some of the stuff you have about uh, Elon Musk and Amber Heard hosting sex parties is the sort of stuff that most reporters, even at giant newsrooms with an an army of lawyers behind them, would be too scared to touch. And so 
how does that feel to be the person bringing these like very um, jaw-dropping stories into the public eye and it sort of being you alone by yourself? I mean, honestly, I feel like I still am fairly naive to how, I guess, to the... The enormity. Yes, the enormity <laughs> of it. That's been a, sort of an adjustment for me is viewing myself in that way because I still see myself as just this person who is telling, a, you know, a story. Mm -hmm. But I think that that is the exciting part of it is taking what I have and presenting it and letting my audience decide what they think. Mm -hmm. But the Elon one did catch me by surprise. I didn't expect it to kind of explode like it did. And I also just didn't realize so many people were paying attention. You know, I know that that source reached out to me for specific reasons. She felt safe, you know, under the, the way I would frame this story. Can you sort of give a quick outline of the story for people who haven't read this before? Yeah, so basically it is, um, the, the Elon story is based on a woman who was involved with Amber Heard in a relationship and kind of got sucked into this Silicon Valley, you know, sex party ring. So she kind of gave details about what these parties are like and how they operate. But she also provided detailed evidence of this incident where she was violently attacked by Amber Heard and her dress was shredded with a wine opener in front of, you know, a room full of people. Allegedly, all of these incidents transpired. But yes, yeah, so I just shared her story and what she presented as far as the text messages. And, you know, there was anonymous sources inside this. But it, also I had heard, you know, the details of these parties came from other sources as well. It's not exactly a secret in that, you know, corner of the Silicon Valley. Yeah, never. obviously I'm living in the wrong part of Silicon Valley, <laughs> missing out on some of those, or most of those, let's say all of those parties. But so these are sources coming to you who have been quite close to power or close to celebrity, close to these people who are often difficult to access, whose lives are not well known by the public. Why are they coming to you? Well, really, I think human nature is you want to share your stories. People like to talk about the experiences they've been through. And most people don't trust mainstream media or what they're going to do with their words and their experience. Hmm. So I feel like, and I'm just speculating, um, that these people come to me because they trust my vision and also they feel protected that I'm not going to overstep when it comes to what we've agreed on sharing. And how, how do you build that trust and how do you prove to them that that trust is well-placed? I often wonder why they come to me too, but it. I think the more that I share and the more they see that these sources have come forward, especially with like, you know, nobody wants to be on record talking about Ghislaine Maxwell right now. So they kind of see what I do with the sources that I've had and it's kind of a snowball effect. You have been an influencer of some sort on Instagram for quite some time. Uh, you've reached a level that is um, like extremely large now in terms of following a million people. But can you take me back to why you got started on Instagram, how you built your following there? And what were you what were you publishing about in the um, the early days there? Because it's totally different to uh, sex parties in Silicon Valley. <laughs> uh, it was always about storytelling, though. When I look back, it, you know, started out as kind of a wholesome lifestyle blog where I would share just daily musings about raising kids and, you know, uh, lifestyle in Southern California, what we were up to, camping and surfing. And that kind of 
morphed into a renovation, a long-going um, home renovation. That became, you know, the focus of that for a couple years of the site. And so it was always about me telling a story about what was in front of me, whether it was motherhood, renovation. And then, you know, as my kids get older, uh, I felt like I don't need to be telling their story to the internet. It felt a little invasive, you know. Mm -hmm. At a certain age, you your children are in charge of their own image mm -hmm. or online persona. So, I, you know, I was like, what am I going to do? Because I do enjoy the connection that I've built on the internet. And I think around 2020, during COVID, things are so crazy. They had gotten so crazy online. And it just felt like a hostile, um, it had become a hostile environment. Every time I logged onto the app, everybody was fighting. Yeah. There was just, it was just an ugly place. I didn't feel good when I logged on. Yeah. I was angry. I was fighting with people all the time. And so I was at the point where I was going to be done with it. It was just not what I wanted it to be anymore. Mm -hmm. And so the pop culture pivot was kind of born out of that. I was done with the internet and I just thought I'm going to post things that make me happy mm -hmm. that I like. That to will never piss anyone off. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's, I, you know, I started with some things about Joan Didion and I went back to old school Hollywood mm. and things people had forgotten about or even the royal family. I had all this wealth of knowledge because it was something I'd studied my whole life. So I started doing these little short stories about different characters or certain scandals mm -hmm. that kind of happened throughout the years. And they were really popular. So it was fun because it was the first time in a few couple years where people were happily debating again and talking about, you know, their opinions on things. It opened up like dialogue again mm -hmm. in, a, in a positive way. You've written a post on Substack. It's one of your most popular posts on Substack about your experience uh, sort of being subjected to harassment and trolling and uh, some bitter disputes can you explain uh, why that happens? Well, I was actually very lucky for the duration of my time on the internet. I was really never had any negative experiences. It's looking back, I realize how fortunate I was. And so I think that part of the animosity is because I did have such a loyal, connected audience, and I feel like it was built on a very liberal foundation. And you my, mean politically? Politically, liberal? yeah. I feel like I built a very liberal audience. And during COVID, when I started to question certain things and um, step what you, outside. What were you questioning? Um, I was speaking out against vaccine mandates. I didn't think that, um, I didn't agree with it. And then You, I, you were pro-vaccine, but anti-mandate, if, right, if I'm understanding correctly. Right. I was pro-vaccine and then I was anti, especially for the kids. I just didn't feel ready yet. Mm -hmm. um, so you didn't, I would you didn't agree that people were shutting down beaches and filling in the skate parks with sand. That was a big thing too. They were coming in and destroying these open, these kind of like last, you know, points to entertain our kids. Skate parks were filled with sand. Mm -hmm. Well, now we know that skate parks were spreading COVID the whole time. Well, so. obviously that, that solved everything, right? <laughs> you know, and I was right. also going crazy with four kids trapped in the house. I was questioning things out loud in real time. Why did you think you could do that and not be subjected to a torrent of um, angry responses from people who disagree with that? <laughs> well, it, you know, it, it's what I've always done. I, I've, you know, I just stayed true to what I was internally dealing with. And so that did come with some questions where things weren't making sense. Like our kids were wearing masks in the classroom, but then they were unmasked on the playground all over each other, like snot. Like it's just things weren't making sense. And so I was kind of making fun of a lot of the things, you know. <laughs> but people, you know, it was a very heated time. Suddenly I was anti-vax and I'm not anti-vax. My right. kids are vaccinated. They have all their vaccines. <laughs> not anti-vax. I'm not radical. Um, I'm not right wing. 
But people like if if you step outside the narrative that they have designated for you, you're instantly, you know, dismissed as some radical right wing like nutcase. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that happens especially so on social media, or is that just general life that was happening? No, I think I, I think in real life people were having much more engaging conversations. And that was that was the thing that I was focused on. I was like, okay, in real life, people are able to still, you know, have these these conversations and be civil. Mm-hmm. Online, it, people have gone crazy. I feel like people have gone crazy. They, they, they go behind these accounts with no face and fake names, mm-hmm. and they just attack other adults. I have, you know, these these hate threads dedicated to my every word, and they dissect everything I say and post, and they make up lies about my family, you know. Mm. I think they hate that somebody they used to like or identify with right. has shifted the narrative and is now succeeding. So, you so used it's to almost in, like a traitor to them. You used to be in good standing with these people. These were your people. These were your peers. They were your followers. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it feels very personal because I can't figure out any other reason you would spend time on these sites harassing, you know, just a random person on the internet unless you felt some sort of personal connection to them. Mm-hmm. It seems like such a negative way to spend any free time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're they're vicious. You know, I have I work for brands. I post advertisements occasionally, and they'll mm-hmm. sometimes target the brands oh. with um, to try and get me, you know, fired to mm-hmm. make it seem like I'm this super controversial figure when when I'm really not. Mm-hmm. Has it changed the way you think about your relationship with Instagram? Um, I I have to constantly keep it in check because I can't let these you know these tiny dark corners of the internet really dictate my overall perception of the internet. Like, I'm so proud of my audience that I built there. It's it's an incredible, that's probably my proudest thing that I've, you know, done over the years is how it's shifted and become a really open-minded, intelligent, funny, you know, audience. They're amazing. Have you ever been suspended from Instagram? Yes, I've been suspended. <laughs> it's like, um, sounds like high school, right? <laughs> I always get Saturday. Has school. Instagram ever given you detention? A lot. <laughs> what happens? How many times has it happened? And how, oh how has gosh. it happened? So I've been suspended quite a few times. And that's where they will disable your account for like uh, two days, up to two days. And they kind of come out of nowhere. Sometimes it's due to reporting, you know, people will flag and report a certain photo or something. And then other times it's completely ridiculous. So the guidelines are all over the place. You never really know what you're doing wrong or where you're overstepping. So that is incredibly frustrating. So I've been suspended probably at least five times. And then I was permanently disabled during the Johnny Depp trial for like 10 days. And how does it feel when your account is taken away from you like that? Because it's, in your case, it's less so now that you're on Substack, but it was your livelihood. Yeah, it was it was terrible. I mean, it's your whole, all my work and memories and contacts. And I mean, you you realize how much you depend on the an app, which is scary because you see how it can just be taken away, you know, overnight. I went to bed and woke up with everything gone. And I was most upset over my, you know, family memories. Mm. I've been on there for over 10 years. So there's been a lot of my personal life documented. And so, yeah, my heart was broken over that. Hmm. And then I was just furious because I also thought like, so I can just be silenced. You know, I can have, I can be sharing my opinions and covering this trial and I can just be taken down like that. Mm-hmm. So easy. It was... And it's not like you can take your followers with you. They are sort no, of the property very, of, of Instagram. Yeah, I was on the verge 
of a million followers then. And it was it was just insane growth through that trial, which was really exciting. Yeah, it was very it was really frustrating to go through that. It was a long week. I started Substack because I had dealt with all of those, the censorship obstacles and incidents. And I knew that I had to find another way or a forum to house this whole thing that I had built. I needed a second point of content. I put it out there that I wanted to figure something out Mm -hmm. and I wanted to, you know, write about it. I felt completely liberated when I got to Substack because I had, you know, people reaching out and wanting to help me and support me. I felt so good to be in a space where I knew I didn't have to second guess every single thing I wanted to share. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the posts you do are behind a paywall, uh, which limits the audience just to the people who are paying. What was the effect of doing that? Well, my whole perspective is that I give away so much on Instagram for free every day. Mm-hmm. That's really in itself a full-time job. I usually devote the first half of my day to putting all this free content on the internet. And so the paid audience was a way for me to make a living at, you know, all the hours I was dedicating to this, the content I was creating. Mm-hmm. And it also gave me an audience who who really valued all the things I wanted to share. You know, it's like the core base. And so it felt right to be writing for this target audience who mm-hmm. was there, you know, paying to be there. Mm-hmm. And I felt an obligation to make that $7 they spend the best $7 a month that they, I want them to get their money's worth. I want them to feel um, excited by what comes in their inbox. So it's just a very kind of intimate relationship as a writer to have this audience who's paying to be there. Did you ever imagine that this would be your job? Oh my gosh, no. I mean, if somebody would have told me this was going to be a paid job when I was in college, I I would have died. Because it sounds too good to be true or for some other reason? Just because I I love it so much. This is what I've done my whole life. I I would always look into these stories with the same intensity. I just wouldn't be sharing them and arranging them for an audience. Mm -hmm. So it's taking a passion of mine and making it, you know, a career. This has been a crazy year for you in terms of the ascent of um, your renown and the the income I imagine that you're making, the reach you have. What does your family make of it? You've got four kids, a husband. What do they all think of this? Oh my gosh, they're so supportive and so proud. The older three are all on social media, so they see and their friends all watch. So they're very proud of me. And then Mike, my husband, I mean, he's so proud. He can't believe it because... You know, he's always worked at least two jobs to provide for the family. And I was a stay-at-home mom for so many years. So this shift, you know, it came out of nowhere. Is it a surprise to you that it happened at this stage in your life when you've got teenage kids now? Like, you know, you not like you would have been plotting a new career around this time of your uh, life, I imagine. Well, that's what I think makes it so special. I feel like nobody thinks, you know, that they turn 40 and their life career is going to be handed to them. So, and I think I'm at a point in my life where I really appreciate it because I didn't see it coming. And now it's, you know, like I said, it's, it's a dream job. Will you do it forever? I would love to. Yeah. I can't, I, like I said, I've been doing it forever. (laughs) (laughs) And I was doing the same thing when I was, you know, 12 years old in my bedroom with the magazines. I knew everything that was going on all the time. And now I just have a really incredible audience behind me. And incredible sources. Do you ever pinch yourself that you're having these conversations with these people who are are living in weird lives? They have strange uh, experiences. Some some of these people I imagine are famous themselves that you're talking to. Like, do you pinch yourself? Yes, it's so unreal. There was a couple weeks ago where 
you know, I'd been on the phone with so many of these incredible sources, some of them celebrities, some of them just people I never thought would reach out and talk to me. And it was just one after another. And I, it's just, yeah, I get off the phone and I'm like, is this real life? Like, was I just washing dishes, talking to Courtney Love about, you know, her roses her in the garden? How are her roses doing? Her rose, she has roses named after all of the royals. So apparently there's breeds. There's the queen rose. She said the Camilla rose is the strongest. Courtney Love is probably the best dinner date I ever had in my life. Why? So, because she she has a she knows everything that's going on in Hollywood, and she's well read and has. Are they are the celebrities oh, themselves gossip merchants like we 100%. are? A hundred percent. Uh huh. They oh, must yeah. have good access to sources themselves. And they yeah they're excited to share some of their spicy details. So everyone loves gossip. That's the thing. That that's why it's the connector. Because no matter how wealthy you are, no matter how educated, it like none of those things matter. Everyone likes to know what everyone else is doing. Yeah. So it is the great bridge because it. It doesn't matter. How big do you want to get? How famous do you want to be? How famous would you be comfortable being if this keeps on going the way it's going? Well, I've learned that I actually don't love the idea of being famous because I would le- I like to be the person behind the scenes telling the story. I don't think it benefits me to be famous, but I would like to continue to be respected and trusted by people to, you know, tell their stories. Do you have any fear of it going away? Like, how, how could it go away? What are your worst nightmares? You know, I feel like... That is one thing about me. I don't I don't worry about that. If the internet canceled me tomorrow, I'd be grateful for everything. Even before all of this success, I was happy that we were able to take free vacations, you know, and do all these unique things with as a family because of the internet. So I don't have that fear. I don't, I mean, I have a great life outside of all of this too. I have a lot of friends and things going on. So that's usually never my concern. Okay, just to finish off the, the show, is there a piece of uh, writing on Substack that you have especially liked and uh, what is it and what did you like about it? I mean, I'm always looking for new Substack recommendations, but, um, and I'm slowly finding, you know, people I love and look forward to reading, but um, Vicki Ward is one of my favorites and she does a lot of political um, pieces. And then she also covered the Maxwell trial. I, I was able, got the chance to meet her um, and get to know her in New York while covering the trial. And I just, I really like her. I enjoy her work. And so she just published a piece about the queen and it was she's, a personal. She's British herself. She uh, is. Yeah. So she, I think she's lived in New York for the past 20 years, but she's, yeah, definitely from the UK. And so she had a, has a personal connection to what the queen um, means to her and her family. And she talks about every Christmas, you know, sitting down to listen to the queen's message and how, what that's going to be like this year without it. So I I kind of loved that a person who is typically sharing political points took the space to honor the queen in a very personal essay. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I read that and it touched, yeah, it made me cry. I liked it. That's great. I think that's a great place to, to finish it, but thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. You can find Jessica Reed Krauss on Substack at Jessica Reed Krauss dot substack dot com and wait for it because it's kind of difficult to spell. It's Jessica. It's J E S S I C A. Reed is R E E D and Krauss is K R A U S. Jessica Reed Krauss dot substack dot com. You can subscribe to this podcast at Reed dot substack dot com. That's R E A D dot substack dot com. Next week, Samantha Irby talks about getting death threats from writing for the Sex and the City reboot. And just like that, see you next week. Mm-hmm.